welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. I am your host, Graham Colbertson. My original plan was to release an episode every week as a full-time caregiver to a two-year-old. I discovered that was wildly optimistic, but I really believe in a weekly podcast release. I want you to be able to count on Everyday Anarchism every week, maybe not around Christmas. I don't know. We'll see uh, how productive I can be. So I got the idea to have a weekly question and answer session where I could speak more off the cuff and do less preparation. The problem with that is that then people have to listen to and respond to the podcast pretty quickly. So I don't know if this idea will be sustainable over time, but I did put out the call um, via my personal social media as well as the podcast for some questions, and I got some questions, and I want to try to answer them. I will say, first of all, unexpectedly, but I think I should have expected this, most of the questions were about the idea of anarchism and the whole project, which makes sense because my podcast, my opening podcast was explicitly about this. I thought I would get questions about David Graeber, questions about Kropotkin, questions about the Praetorian Guard, but people really wanted to know, wait, seriously, what is anarchism and how do you think everything is or can be anarchism? And also definitely this seems wrong. So let me try and defend my audacious claims in the first episode and then next week you will see what it looks like when I do a long discussion of these claims in one arena, which will be Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. So the first question comes from Jamie, and Jamie says, I will admit my comments and questions will be limited for this episode as I attempted to multitask my Iliad readings while listening. Okay, I decided to answer Jamie in terms of the Iliad because I wouldn't want to do anything to disrupt Jamie's homework. Um, Jamie says, accepting the assumption that the majority of us are good-natured and could exist in a society predicated on cooperation as opposed to greed without a system of government that has a praetorian guard capable of enforcing order, how do we stop the minority of people who are consumed with greed from abusing the system to their own great advantage? If the eventual continuation of these ideals is a society free of governance and oppression reliant on the basic benevolent tendency we all exact every day. Okay, this is the big question about anarchism. Every time someone comes up with anarchism, some version of capital A anarchism, let's tear down government. This is the question. What are you going to do about the bad people about the greedy people, about the people who need to be kept in line by the cops, the Praetorian Guard, the law, whoever it is that keeps people in line. My answer to this question, well, first of all, there's the classic anarchist answer to this question, which I guess I give before I will give my answer, which is people say, if you get rid of cops, there will be murder everywhere, to which the anarchist answer is, Oh, right now there's not murder? Well, it seems like there is murder right now. And if you've been paying attention, a lot of the times the people doing the murdering are the cops. 
Did you perhaps notice that's been happening in America lately? So, the statement goes something like this. With cops, there is lots of murder, including murder by the cops. But if the cops go away, murder will get worse because there are bad people. Or, Jamie asked about greed. Um, With our rules against insider trading and embezzlement, there is nevertheless tons of insider trading and embezzlement, and the U.S. government not only doesn't stop it, but seems in many ways to abet it. Therefore, if we get rid of the rules against insider trading and embezzlement, there will be insider trading and embezzlement, but we already have those things. And what's worse, people who have lots of money tend to get richer and they do it legally. They do it in an above board way. The rules are not only not stopping them from using their greed to take power away from the rest of us, the rules are what makes it possible for them to do that. So that's answer one, is to say, look, If you're a capital A anarchist, you don't have to say that your world is going to be a utopia in the future. You can just say the current world sucks. The rich keep getting richer, and the people whose job it is to stop murders keep murdering people. What's wrong with trying something else? But I'm trying to make an even trickier argument. I don't want to talk about the continuation of these ideals into an anarchist utopia. I would like that utopia to happen, and admittedly I have been making a YouTube series about the continuation of these ideas into an anarchist utopia. Um, I can link to that on the website when I publish the website. If you want to, email me if you want that. Otherwise, I will just let it go and assume no one wants it. But I'm talking about our present day lives, and especially the institutions all around us. They already work on anarchism, which is why I want to talk about the Iliad. Maybe you haven't read the Iliad since high school or college. Maybe you're in high school or college and are currently reading the Iliad like Jamie is. Maybe you've never read the Iliad. You probably have a vague sense, though, that the Iliad has the the war of the Greeks against the Trojans and the Trojan horse and something about Achilles and a heel, right? That's the Iliad. First of all, the Trojan horse is not in the Iliad. Secondly, The Iliad is not really about the war between the Trojans and the Greeks. It's really about anarchy. I would say anarchy rather than anarchism in the Greek camp. So the boss of all the Greeks is this guy Agamemnon. He is the king of kings. Why is he the king? Well, it's complicated. Basically, he's just the king because his dad, Atreus, was really powerful. And he's got a brother, Menelaus, who is also pretty powerful. And between the two of them, they are the most powerful Greeks around. So since Menelaus has been uh, defiled because his wife has been kidnapped and taken to Troy, Agamemnon orders all of the Greek kings to lead all of their men to go fight the Trojans because Agamemnon is the biggest king. But the story of the Iliad is not about the Trojans being defeated. Remember, the Trojan horse is not in this. The war does not end during the Iliad. The Iliad is about Agamemnon not being able to get Achilles to go to war. 
And he keeps ordering Achilles to go to war and says, I am the king. I am the king of kings. And Achilles, who is the greatest warrior in the history of the world, according to the Iliad, he defeats everyone um, until tragic Achilles heel, etc. He's like, no, I don't want to. Um, Agamemnon sucks. He's a jerk. I am not going to fight for him. And guess what? It doesn't matter that Agamemnon is his, quote, boss. It doesn't matter that Agamemnon is in charge. When Achilles stops believing that Agamemnon is in charge, the war basically stops. I am not articulating a future where greed will go away and people will stop being pissy the way Agamemnon and Achilles were pissy with one another, leading to still the most important work of classical literature ever. I'm saying that everywhere you look, you will find it. You will find that authority doesn't work without collaboration and cooperation. When Achilles decides he's not on Team Agamemnon anymore, it doesn't matter. There's no one to coerce the coercer. And ultimately, and I'll get to this in a second, what you need is someone to convince Achilles to go to battle. It's worse than that, though, because all through the Iliad, the gods are constantly interfering. And if you know about the Greek gods, you know that Zeus is the most powerful. He's sometimes described as Zeus the all-powerful. But it turns out that Zeus is beholden to his wife and his kids and all sorts of other people. And Zeus keeps taking one side and the other side. And Zeus falls asleep or Zeus gets seduced by Hera and Zeus keeps intervening. Zeus is in charge. He's all-powerful. And they all say, oh, if we do anything bad, Zeus will kill us. But they can convince Zeus. They can go behind Zeus's back. They can manipulate the system. No one, in fact, is in charge. It is anarchy. We have an all-powerful king and an all-powerful god, and it turns out that neither of them have that much power. Their power depends on the consent of the governed. Even if you've got kings, even if you've got gods, you've got anarchy. Now, Shakespeare actually tells the story of the Iliad in his play, Troilus and Cressida. And in that play, Ulysses, or Odysseus in the Greek, gives this incredibly famous speech about the great chain of being, which is the belief that everything needs to be in order. There is a place for everyone. God is above man, and man is above woman, and woman is above animal, and animals above plant, etc. If things are not in their right places, you get, yeah, I would call it anarchy. And here's Ulysses' speech. But when the planets in evil mixture to disorder wander, what plagues and what portents, what mutiny, what raging of the sea, shaking of earth, commotion in the winds, frights, changes, horrors, divert and crack, rend and deracinate the unity and married calm of states quite from their fixture. A wind degree is shaked, meaning when the king is not respected or the people who are in charge are no longer in charge, right? When things have gotten shaken up, which is the latter to all high designs, the enterprise is sick. How could communities, 
degrees in schools and brotherhoods in cities, peaceful commerce from dividable shores, the primogenity and due of birth, prerogative of age, crowns, scepters, laurels, but by degrees stand in authentic place. Take but degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. In other words, if people stop listening to the king because the king is the boss, everything will fall apart. But remember who says this? It's Ulysses. It's Odysseus. Dante puts him in hell for being such a liar. He is constantly defying the gods. He has to wander for 20 years because he did not respect Poseidon. He, Ulysses doesn't respect degree at all. And in fact, all through this play, Troilus and Cressida, he is lying. He is deceiving. One story that's not in Troilus and Cressida, but I'm confident Shakespeare would have known, is that Ulysses refused the order from Agamemnon and Menelaus to join the war. He doesn't believe in degree at all, or rather, he is willing to sleep with any woman he encounters because he doesn't think the rules apply to him. And when he comes home, he murders every man who romanced Penelope, his wife. They thought Odysseus was dead. They did nothing wrong, but he murders them because they have broken the rules of degree. That's how anarchy works right now. Everyone wants anarchism for themselves to be able to break the rules, but they want the rules to stand super strong when they are checking someone else. And I think Shakespeare's message in this play, which is Shakespeare's message in a lot of his plays, is that there isn't any way to get authority to hold up, no matter what you use order, decrees, God, laws, violence, it is always going to slip through your fingers. That's usually what happens to anyone who tries to maintain power in Shakespeare. They lose and they die. So in response to your question, Jamie, I'm not trying to argue that the world would be perfect if we got rid of authority structures I'm trying to show you that the authority structures that we have right now are simultaneously incomplete and also oppressive. They are binding us the way Agamemnon tries to bind Achilles, but they never actually hold up. So Agamemnon is unable to bind Achilles. And we should stop lying to ourselves and saying, oh, there's got to be a boss. There has to be authority. You cannot break decree, degree, otherwise you get mutiny. Because mutiny happens all the time. You know what causes a mutiny? The captain insisting that you cannot break degree. That brings me to my next question. And I am afraid I'm going to stick with the Iliad for this one. So if you don't want to hear any more about the Iliad, you can skip ahead. Um, Tony wrote in and wanted to know, what does this mean for rights? Under anarchism, can we have rights? And the short answer is, no, we can't have rights under anarchism. But this is roughly the same answer, and this is why I'm going to use the Iliad again, that I gave to Jamie. You already don't have rights, or at least simply writing them down doesn't do anything. 
probably the most famous right in America is the right to freedom of speech, the First Amendment. And yet, the University of North Carolina, where I went to grad school for decades during the Cold War, forbade communists and people who were too far left from speaking on the campus. Did this violate their freedom of speech? Well, it seems obvious to us that it violated their freedom of speech, but someone, some authority figure, some judge decided it didn't violate their freedom of speech. We want our rights to be guaranteed, divine, unalienable human rights, but it never works that way. There is no such thing as rights, except what the community comes together and guarantees. Really famously, after the Holocaust in 1948, the United Nations came together and declared human rights for everyone. The goal was to prevent something like the Holocaust from ever happening again. Hannah Arendt, the philosopher, you might have heard of her, she coined the term banality of evil in discussions of Adolf Eichmann, the guy who was sort of responsible for the bureaucracy of the Holocaust, who seems to have treated the Holocaust as just, you know, another job to do. And Arendt was very positive about these rights. And in the past, everyone was supposed to have rights, and those rights were supposed to be granted to them by their state, their government. But it didn't work out that way. People's rights were denied by their governments. So now Arendt thinks, okay, the UN will guarantee these rights. But it doesn't work that way. Just like the government can refuse to uphold rights, the UN can refuse to uphold rights. The only thing the UN can do to uphold those rights is to go in and invade a country, which occasionally the UN does that, but it, somehow it never does that when the country that would be invaded is particularly powerful or particularly influential in the UN. The rights you have are simply the rights that the people around you will help you maintain, which is to say they are not rights. Whatever privileges or freedoms you have comes from your community, comes from the belief of your community. Everyone had the right to freedom of speech in the 20th century on UNC's campus, according to the Constitution. But people decided not to uphold those rights for the communists, so they didn't have those rights. What does that have to do with the Iliad? Well, <laughs> I didn't tell you what Achilles and Agamemnon were fighting about. So at this time... Women are chattel. They are counted as spoils of war. It's a form of slavery. This is something I'm going to talk about more in the divorce episode. That is a couple weeks out. It's coming after the Tolkien episode. And Agamemnon has lost the woman that he has been given as his right, as the king, to choose the best woman to be his slave because her father is the priest for, I think, Poseidon. And so even though Agamemnon has lots of power, he does not have as much power as a god, and he has to give up his slave. And then he says, okay, well, if I have to give up my slave, I want uh, Achilles's slave woman. You have to give me my woman. And Achilles says, this is my right. I get to keep that woman. And Agamemnon says, well, it's not your right anymore. And Achilles says, okay, come here and take her from me. That's all rights are. 
And if everyone in the army had risen up and agreed with Achilles and said, no, Agamemnon, you don't get Achilles's woman. You don't get to take the slave from him. Well, there you have it. That would be the end of it. But people don't agree. There's an argument, and the result is this little thing called the Iliad. Very famously also, when the Supreme Court rules separate but equal schools are illegal, that black kids in America have the right to go to the same school as white kids, it doesn't happen. And to a huge extent, the civil rights movement is the product of people saying, we got this right on paper, but it doesn't count until we actually have it. So you can be granted these rights on paper. They can be guaranteed to you. But unless you are able to fight for them, and unless the people around you support you in your fight for them, rights don't matter. Rights are just made up things like everything else. They are subject to human interpretations. They are subject to the struggle of cooperation, competition, commercialism, and coercion, just like everything else. In that respect, certainly, from a capital A anarchist perspective, I don't think it's a good idea to think about rights. From a lowercase a anarchist perspective, from an everyday anarchist, you can just say, oh, hey, we have this thing called the right to freedom of speech from the Constitution. What does that actually mean? What do we want it to actually look like? Let's talk about it. Otherwise, you're depending on what? The Supreme Court to decide what those rights are? The Supreme Court will give you and take away your rights all day long, regardless of what it says on that piece of paper. Okay, I've got two more questions. Um, One comes from Rook. Rook asks, One thing that specifically caught my attention was how you describe figures who were anarchists in nature, but would never identify with that label. Could you tell us a little bit more about those people, those who might get overlooked when discussing anarchism and its meaning? To a certain extent, uh, the answer to Rook's question is, Listen to this podcast. I don't have episodes planned about Emma Goldman and David Graeber and Kropotkin. My goal is to take the people who would not call themselves anarchists or who we wouldn't necessarily think of as anarchists and show that their ideas are compatible with people like Graeber and Goldman and Kropotkin. I just mentioned the civil rights movement, and the most obvious one is Martin Luther King. So George Orwell is beloved by everyone. Gandhi is beloved by everyone. Actually, these people are not beloved by everyone, but there is a cookie-cutter version of them that everyone loves. And both of them use the word anarchist to describe themselves. Although Gandhi objects to violence, and Gandhi describes himself as a non-violent anarchist under the assumption that anarchists are violent, which, as you know if you listened to the last episode, that's actually a pretty big point of disagreement among anarchism, whether it should be uh, violent or not. But no one absorbed Gandhi's message and Tolstoy's message and Thoreau's message and used it more powerfully than Martin Luther King. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., is, in my opinion, the greatest anarchist in history. He would not describe himself as an anarchist because he accepts the definition of anarchy as disorder, war, mutiny. But he certainly wouldn't agree with Ulysses' great chain of being. He believes in direct action. 
He believes that the people can step forward to get their rights. And he believes that your rights are never guaranteed that you have to go out and get them. He thinks they are guaranteed by God, but that God will not do anything for those rights except work through you. In short, the greatest American hero of the 20th century, MLK, is an anarchist, and he's precisely the kind of person that we wouldn't discuss in those terms. I don't have an episode planned on MLK right now because it's just, it's, it, it's too big. His uh, importance to America, to the world, to my thought is bigger than anything I could possibly do a podcast about. I'm considering someday down the line doing an entire season on MLK and his influences and the people he influenced. I mean, I'm talking months of work on him. Otherwise, he's too big. But uh, to talk about some other people, I do have an episode that I'm working on on Jesus. I think Jesus is an anarchist. I'm pretty sure Santa Claus is an anarchist. I'm hoping to have an episode for that uh, for you around Christmas time. Obviously, as I mentioned, Thoreau is at the heart of anarchism. But if you go to the Wikipedia page, one of the first things that someone says in there is he says it's okay to have good government. Therefore, he is not an anarchist. That's the other place, Rook, where we have troubles. People are obsessed with defining who is and who isn't an anarchist. And I very much subscribe to Kropotkin's idea that there's a lot of people out there who agree with anarchism, who agree with the basic tenets. In fact, I believe I argued everyone agrees with the basic tenets of anarchism, but for one reason or another are not willing to ally themselves with that movement. I am here to say you can be an anarchist without allying yourselves to the anarchist movement. Again, for Tolkien next week, we don't have to do that. For Gandhi, we don't have to do that. These people declared themselves to be anarchist, but we do not talk about them in that way. In short, most of our heroes are anarchists. It's time that we start describing them that way. Okay, I have one last question. It's a long and sophisticated question. I'm going to try and read it in its entirety because I think the whole thing is valuable and I don't think I can answer it adequately, but I'm going to take a shot. So Sarah writes, I can buy the idea that cooperation underlies all kinds of things, including things we don't usually think of as cooperative. But it seems like if we look for cooperation everywhere, it ends up being a neutral force instead of something necessarily desirable. Like, if cooperation is what makes money or the military work, that doesn't mean we need to like those things more than we otherwise would, right? Or to take another example, a recent issue of The Ethicist from the New York Times featured a question from someone who is excelling at their job in less than 40 hours per week, and wondering what they should do with the remaining time. The response, which focused on the reasons to go above and beyond, leaned on the idea that cooperation is basically what makes our economy work. As it said, quoting, Workplaces falter unless people do more than is strictly required. A well-functioning organization, whether in the private sector or the public, is full of people doing things they don't have a formal obligation to do. End quote. But while presented uncritically, this seems like actually a description of an economy that depends on exploitation to get more out of labor than it pays for. That's cooperation. But surely it's not anarchist in the way you're talking about, right? Or is it? 
can't cooperation just as well be put toward problematic uses as good ones? If we look for it everywhere, but often find it in service of bad ends, where does that leave us? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I will admit I had this idea in mind as I was writing and recording the first episode. I am going to have to think out loud a little bit to try and do this, which is the idea behind this version of this podcast, that it's the every other week Q&A ones are looser. Sarah, this is a fantastic question. Let me try and give you my answer. Okay, so everything depends on cooperation. Everything wouldn't work without cooperation. Um, Kropotkin says it's a leaven of communism that makes all of our existing institutions work. Appiah, writing for the New York Times, says a well-functioning organization is full of people doing things they don't have a formal obligation to do. And Sarah's asking very correctly. So this means anarchism isn't necessarily good or bad. If anarchism is behind armies or money or exploitative work practices, then anarchism is just a thing. It's neither good nor bad. It just is. My answer, and this is also Kropotkin's and Graber's answer. I'm going to do some original thinking in this podcast, but I haven't yet. My answer is that the boss wants anarchism to work for the boss, but not for you. The boss wants you to stay past five, even though you are not obligated to stay past five, but the boss will freak out and punish you if you leave at four the next day. The rules are for you, and the cooperation is for the boss. We are all in mutual aid with one another. But right now, a relatively few people are reaping all of the rewards of all of the mutual aid that we are doing. Yes, Appiah is right. Corporations wouldn't work if people didn't do far more than they are obligated to do. In that respect, mutual aid is being used to exploit people. But while the boss will say, hey, I need you to go an extra mile, we're all on the same team when it benefits him. The boss will not say that when it benefits you. So the goal of this idea that anarchism is underneath everything, is to say when the boss says, hey, we're all in this together, let's work together, I need your help, I need you to stay to 9 p.m., you can say, fine, that makes sense. But if that's the case, if my giving up of my rights is what makes your position possible, maybe we don't need a boss. Maybe you don't need that huge salary. Maybe you don't need to be in that position anymore. The same goes for something like the army. Orwell has wonderful descriptions of serving in an anarchist army where the orders are always followed because everyone believes in the officers. You need a boss? 
maybe, according to this militia that he served in. But that boss is someone who has everyone's support and who knows that if he loses that support, he loses his bossness. Right now, you are obliged to serve in mutual aid to the boss or the institution. But the institution will fire you, punish you, cut your hours, and they will say, it's not personal, it's only business. But that's not true, is it? It is personal. It is about obligations to cooperate, to work together. It is about mutual aid. Appiah and Kropotkin agree. Without mutual aid, every corporation will fall apart. But then Appiah goes on to say, oh, hey, so I guess you need to really work hard for your corporation. Kropotkin says, hmm, maybe we don't need bosses in our corporations if they are really just the parasites from our mutual aid. They want you in solidarity with them so you can demand that they are in solidarity with you. And that is the idea behind this podcast. Nothing is ever a purely administrative matter. Nothing is ever simply a matter of rules, of laws, of authority, of coercion. There's always cooperation behind it. And so the people who are cooperating can withdraw their cooperation. Once you realize that the entire system depends on your cooperation, you can start cooperating horizontally with your fellow workers, with your community members, with your friends and family, as opposed to cooperating vertically with the bosses, with the politicians, with the people with power, because you're already cooperating. You're just cooperating with the wrong people, people who do not cooperate with you, even as they are dependent on your cooperation. Okay, Sarah, please let me know if that answer helped at all. Actually, I want to hear from everyone. Did this idea even work? I only came up with this idea about two weeks ago to have this question and answer podcast. I wasn't really prepared for it. I hope this was valuable. Please let me know what you thought. If it was too long, if it was too boring, if I should stop doing them, if you would rather it just be an every other week release, or if you want more, if you have any questions about anything, email me at everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com, and I will see you next week for J.R.R. Tolkien. Thanks again.